And hello, everybody. Welcome to FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Baghurst, and today's guest is Nick Shedd. He's the owner of Shed Performance Systems. Nick, thank you for joining me. If you wouldn't mind, just share briefly a little bit about your background and how you got to, to where you are today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, and I uh, played football at Averett University in Danville, Virginia, and I studied sports medicine slash wellness while I was there. And after grads or after my undergrad, I went to grad school at Appalachian State, studied exercise science um, with a concentration in strength and conditioning. And uh, from there, I went to North Carolina and did a postgrad internship with the U.S. Army. Uh, when that was over, I moved back home and in the midst of looking for a job, needed a, a free place to work out. And there was a, a local university there, um, the University of South Carolina, Aiken. And I went up there to chat with their staff and uh, found out at the time they didn't even have a strength and conditioning program. So uh, I bartered to be their strength and conditioning coach for their baseball team in exchange for a place to work out. So um, did that for a while, and then I moved on to Richmond, Virginia, and I was a sports performance coordinator uh, managing a sports performance location out of the Bon Secours Washington Redskins Training Center uh, in downtown Richmond. And I, I trained everything from uh, youth athletes to collegiate athletes to general population, special populations. And uh, after two years, I went to Virginia Beach and I worked for Exos um, as a performance specialist, a very similar uh, population there um, with the addition of some surfers and sailors. And um, we did some tactical performance mentorships with uh, the Navy. And then I went to Pennsylvania um, and was the head of strength and conditioning for the U.S. Women's National Field Hockey Team for three years. And then after that, I decided to uh, begin work on my doctorate at Auckland University of Technology. I'm currently doing that from the States and am running a consulting and performance business uh, at the same time. That's a lot. You've been around. Tell me a little bit what a performance coach is or a performance consultant or because it's it's thrown around a lot, right? I'm a performance coach for you anyway. What what does that mean? What did that entail? Um that yeah, that's a, a loaded question. You know, I, I think it starts I ask loaded questions, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it starts with the the core competencies of, of understanding human biomechanics and bioenergetics and uh, wanting to help people improve uh, improve whatever it is they're trying to improve, whether it's their life, uh, just general movement, daily functioning, um, up to the the elite athlete level where you're trying to uh, get every every ounce of potential uh, out of that person and help them achieve their their career goals um, in, in a way being a strength and conditioning coach or performance specialist you are an influencer you are um, you are a mentor uh, you are a manager um, it, it's a it's a position that that really wears a lot of hats uh, and those hats can change depending on on what your venue looks like 
you, you run your own business now. And one of the, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but, but one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking about all of those hats that you wear is there's a, a challenge maybe to, to know when to turn off because you have a responsibility of bringing in income. It's your business. You're responsible for finding clients, working with them. How do you, how do you separate that from, okay, now I, I'm at home. I have to, to shut down. I have to spend time with family. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that's something that the strength and conditioning industry struggles with as a whole. Um, in some venues, uh, practitioners can be drastically overworked. You look, look at some NCAA schools and you've got one strength coach for six to eight teams. Mm. Um, in my case, I struggled the most with that when I was with the field hockey team. We were on the road uh, well over 100 days a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my last year there in 2019, we traveled to eight different or excuse me, 11 different countries in the first eight months of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're on the road, especially when you're working in Olympic sports, the staff sizes tend to be small. So I was the only only person on our staff handling the strength and conditioning, the athlete monitoring, the the performance science side of things, um, and as well as being involved in the rehab side. But when you travel, that extends even further into helping athletes uh, get their laundry, get their groceries, um, working with with uh, chefs wherever you are to make sure that the food is is what you need uh, for your athletes to perform, etc. So it's really around the clock job. And it becomes very difficult to switch that off uh, when you get home. And there's also this, you know, I, I don't think I stand alone when I say this. I have this great passion for wanting to get better at what I do in order to get better at helping other people. And uh, the strength and conditioning industry is very, um, very competitive in that regard. So I almost feel like when when the work day is done, if if I don't go home and read some research or read a book or something pertaining to the, to the profession uh, that I'm falling behind almost immediately. And um, I, I do have a, a wife, no kids yet, but I have a wife and a dog. So I, I have a family that I have to attend to. Um, and it took me a couple of years to really learn when to shut that down. But some of what's helping me is I'm studying uh, sleep and performance uh, for my doctorate. And, uh, I'm, I've always been a heavy sleeper. I could sleep 10, 12 hours a day. If I only get eight hours, I don't really feel refreshed. So um, doing all of those things to, to wind down at the end of the day kind of coincide with spending time with your family and, and putting down the, the profession for a few hours. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working towards. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Nick Shedd. If you have a question, just put it in your chat box and we'll get it to him. Let's talk about your dissertation because sleep is something I think a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes ignore, yet research is starting to show that that's probably the most important component of performance. Yeah, so I I don't want to throw around a blanket statement, but I think that there's a few reasons why it's either ignored or um, or not heavily tracked or thought about within programs. And there are programs out there that are certainly doing it. But 
Um, one thing that I hear as I talk to practitioners is we know our athletes don't sleep well. So therefore there's nothing we can do about that. Um, we're going to adjust everything else accordingly. And if you look at a lot of the, the research, the research on, around sleep and performance really exploded in the last maybe five to 10 years. Um, and, and most of that has focused on total sleep time, uh, subjective reporting of sleep quality, et cetera. And while there certainly is efficacy to, to looking at those metrics, it doesn't necessarily paint the whole picture and doesn't give a, doesn't always give a good enough landscape to make changes within your program. And that's where sleep research in performance needs to continue to advance. Um, the other difficult part around that is subjective reporting of sleep can of, often be difficult. It, it can be good for, for capturing behaviors and tendencies within athletes. But if an athlete wakes up tired, they tend to assume that they didn't sleep well. And if they assume they didn't sleep well, then they usually project that they slept worse than they actually did and vice versa. If they wake up feeling refreshed, they often feel like um, they actually slept better than they truly did. Um, so the, the subjective measures of reporting around that are, um, are, are questionable in their, their validity and, and sleep quality is, is often tied to mood and muscle soreness and other things like that. So that can impact subjective reporting. And I think people get caught up in and aren't really sure always how to interpret that information. Um, where, I, where I see sleep research going is, is becoming an input and output for training. Um, we, we understand that sleep affects everything from a hormonal level down to an intracellular level. Uh, it can affect epigenetic changes in the body. It, it has a massive, massive impact on training. And when I was with the, the U.S. Women's National Field Hockey Team, that became a, a focus of ours, I want to say around 2000, the end of 2017, early 2018, because of how rigorous our training environment and our, our travel schedule was. So we uh, linked up with the, the USOPC, and it just so happened that they were uh, starting out a, a project, uh, rolling out a sleep monitoring program. So we got to be the pilot study for that, and or, or the, at least the pilot team for that, and uh, started monitoring our athletes' sleep on a daily basis. So within 10 minutes of them waking up, I would get their objective sleep data. I would also be getting subjective wellness information. And we started to use that as an input for training. Um, perhaps looking back, we, we might have been overextending the, the capabilities of the technology. Um, but And technology, as far as the, the consumer devices go, uh, really still has a, a long way to go in order to, um, to, to become really reliable and valid uh, in the public market. But we, we started monitoring those things on a daily basis and adjusting our training uh, on an individual level based on how players were sleeping. And we created dashboards and, and uh, we're validating our objective data against our subjective data, et cetera. And, uh, and that's a program that, that is widely used within the USOPC now. So I, I, I think we can conclude from what you just told us that you're a huge proponent of sleep. 
not enough athletes get it. Coaches often accept that their athletes don't get enough and just say, well, we'll work around it. Have you, have you figured out or developed any kind of suggestions for coaches to encourage athletes to get more sleep? Because right. Admittedly, a lot of athletes don't, don't travel every day with their coach. So the coach can't ensure that they're in bed. They can't ensure that the person even sleeps. How do you, how do you get that high school team to understand that going to bed at, at, you know, 11 PM is going to make you better in three days time instead of going to bed at 3 AM. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. And I should back up um, and add to that, that a lot of the professional sports organizations, uh, depending on their players unions and their collective bargaining agreements actually cannot do monitoring uh, off of or outside of their, their court or off of the ice, et cetera. Mm, good point. Yeah. They can't force athletes to take that home. So that becomes another hurdle. Um, the, the general best recommendation that I've heard so far is just to increase the total amount of time that you're in bed. And mm. that typically inherently increases uh, total sleep time. I don't know that we're quite there yet as far as manipulating variables uh, within sleep, especially with with non-pharmacological interventions. There are things uh, being used and we used on the women's national team uh, like blue light therapy um, at at times when, say, you're traveling or your athletes are going to wake up, but you know they're going to be inside of the hotel for for three hours in the morning and you just got to a new time zone, you really need them to get that light exposure. Um, there, there's blue light glasses, there's research coming out on flash therapy, et cetera. But the, the consensus, especially if you're talking to uh, college or high school kids, is that you need to spend more time in bed, shut off the devices early. Um, and, and I think you know, with athletes, they care most about whatever you test. And that's what becomes really difficult. You know, if, if you take a team and your only test is a one RM back squat, they're going to get competitive over that back squat, whether it's really relevant to their sport or not. Um, and so I, I think if, even if you don't do it all year, all year long, or you, you only do it for two weeks, the entire year, getting some kind of subjective reporting around sleep, and obviously not using that as as a uh, as a whipping stick to tell you know try to force people to sleep more, but just use it as a as an educational piece. And I'll give you an example. When I started using subjective reporting, uh, just sending my athlete more athletes morning wellness questionnaires, you could see trends, uh, especially around social jet lag, meaning on the weekends they are. Uh, they're, they're staying up later, they're sleeping in later. So their circadian rhythm changes, it shifts a little bit. And then come Monday, they don't sleep as well. And then uh, Wednesdays for us, we only had training in the morning. And then they had off the entire afternoon, you saw a very similar dip with a lot of athletes, a little bit of a shift. Um, for so for whatever reason, either they weren't they weren't exhausted enough, or they had so much time on their hands all afternoon that they tended to stay up a little bit later. Um, so you can really use those uh, for each individual's lifestyle patterns and have conversations around that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic and one I I haven't had discussed on the show before. So so 
getting your insight, especially as you're doing the research on it is, is fantastic. If I turn you back to your, your small business, I'm always interested in people who start small businesses because it's such a challenge, you know, having been there myself. And I think a lot of people who are coming through our programs or, or want to get better as coaches often look at, you know, maybe, maybe the, the college route isn't for me, or maybe the high school route isn't for me. I really want to start my own thing and, and kind of see it grow. How do you do that? Cause it's, it's a difficult job. You have other competing or companies, you have bigger companies who say, well, Hey, we can, we can do all of that and more. How do you develop your own business so that we're, so that you're successful enough to pay the bills to be blunt? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm kind of figuring that out as I go. Um, I think if you're going to start your own business, the first thing you need to do is, is talk to a financial advisor, talk mm -hmm. to accountants, talk to people that have started small businesses. Um, I was lucky enough that, that my parents had started one uh, when I was younger, so they've had experience through this um, and really understand what, what you're getting into and what are the steps that you have to take to even file for an LLC and right. Uh, get the insurance and and how are how are you going to do your bookkeeping and and figure all those out start lay the foundation uh, really well and if you're if you're working with somebody else starting your business you need you need a, a solid operating agreement and there can be really uncomfortable conversations you have to have around what goes into that operating agreement and and so on and so forth um, and then it, it starts with proving your worth to people and uh and making connections to people how do you uh, prove I, your worth though that's that's a you know it's it's easy to say but it's another thing to get somebody to reach into their pocket and pull out pull out cash or a credit card and say here you go this is valuable to me yeah um Again, I think that's a it's a difficult question. I think it takes time. Uh, part of what we're doing is we are uh, constantly sifting through the the literature that's coming out, um, talking to people about best practices, and, and putting out content uh, that that hopefully even the layperson can read and understand and digest and and sort of make sense of this this crazy world and, and this growing body of research. Um, as we talked about before, so many practitioners don't even have time to do that right now. And, and I think if we make it easily digestible, which is something we found has been great uh, with social media platforms is forcing people to put information into really consolidated boxes. Mm -hmm. um, then people tend to, they tend to eat that up. I, I think it's also a, a, a bit of networking, having conversations with people and offering other people things before they offer you the cash in their pocket. Um, when I started doing consulting, it, it all came by word of mouth and um, people were reaching out and I was doing it all pro bono. And then I, I kind of mm -hmm. came to a point with my, <laughs> with my career and, and with my family said, you know, I can, I can make some money at this, um, but beware when you go to put a price tag on that all those people that, that wanted it for free, um, they're going to have to think about it more than, than when you were offering it for free. That's just the reality. So um, people are more willing to pay for, for things if, uh, 
if you are able to provide them something, whether it's content, whether it's uh, an hour conversation, uh, something on the front end so that they can, uh, they can build trust with you. To, to be more specific then, you, you just talked about doing things on the front end, having conversations with them and so on. Do you, do you, do you bill people per session? Do you bill them per month? How does that work? Because there's so many different models out there. What have you found works for you? Yeah, we don't see too many individual athletes. Um, okay. There are a couple, but we're pretty selective about that as, as far as doing virtual programming. And the, the main reason for that is just the reality of it, the quality of what you're able to provide um, either via email or even, even via Zoom goes down tremendously from what you can provide in person. And um, we, we are always keen to help people, but we, we want to make sure we're putting out a good product. Um, but when it comes to say consulting, I've had, I've had uh, NCAA teams that have said, you know, our sport coaches handle the conditioning. Our SNC coach handles what goes on in the weight room. Um, and unfortunately, not every school has a great relationship uh, between the two. So the sport coaches uh, in some circumstances have sent me the programs that they've written. Uh, they've sent me the, the SNC programs and we've had conversations with the entire staff around what's going to work, what doesn't work. Um, particularly in, in the realm of field hockey, people want to know uh, what the benchmarks are that the national team players are doing. Uh, fortunately, I have insights uh, further than just the national team looking at our junior high performance teams and, and looking down at the NCAA level and, and what certain uh, key performance indicator benchmarks are actually attainable at those different levels. So some of it's uh, really around adjusting expectations and um, adjusting the the volume and intensity of their training to to get best outcomes. And then uh, you can you can make some subtle changes within a, a short conversation and taking a glance at at somebody's program, or at least give them something that might be be thought provoking. And then if they go back and implement that and they, they see the fruits of their labor, they're going to come back. Yeah. So, so word of mouth is obviously big in, in, in a, a situation like this, starting a small business, running a small business, using word of mouth and things is, is difficult. I think it would be fair to say, and we talked about, you know, balancing your life with that. What are some of the challenges that you face that other people need to be aware of if they're looking to, to do something similar? Um, I, I think just be aware of what the market looks like. Um, don't assume that because you make a good website um, or that you're offering a great product that people will necessarily care. Uh, you have to explain to people why things are important, why they're going to help their their performance, um, why it is a good idea for them to uh, spend money on you. Um, and, and it is like you said, it, it becomes a, a bit of a grind to constantly be putting out content, to constantly be getting in touch with people, making sure that you're visible um, because with, with social media today, there's there's a, a lot of, of high speed scrolling going on with the thumbs and, and 
to get somebody to interact with your post is much different than to get somebody uh, just to see the post. And um, uh, I think you have to have to be prepared to be a, a good marketer, which is something that that I'm learning to do right now. It's it doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah, it's a great point. We talked before the stream, just this idea of we'll, we'll come up with a great blog post. We'll come up with this great information. We'll post it out there. Apparently nobody really likes it, but we'll post something funny and everybody likes it. And that's, that can be frustrating, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, especially Twitter is, is used very, very heavily by the, the fitness community for information sharing. Um, but the, I think a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of the people with the most followers are the simply the most polarizing, uh, people that are willing to say whatever comes to mind, uh, give that shock value, uh, on social media, posting funny memes, et cetera. And I've experienced that too. And it's, uh, I, I think you still should try to contribute in some way. If that's your platform, try to contribute to, uh, um, to the, the growing uh, thoughts of the industry. Um, but it, maybe you do have to post some funny stuff from time to time just to get people to uh, get a few extra follows, a few extra views. Now, take yourself back to, to the beginning when, when you started undergrad and, and went through your grad programs. <clears throat> and just, just think about your career as a whole. If you could go back and, and start again, knowing what you know now, what what would you have done differently? I would have trained myself better as an athlete. Uh, <laughs> uh, that that would be first and foremost. Um, you know, my I, I really like the path that I took. My two of my core professors in my undergrad were, were Lee Burton and Gray Cook, the guys who founded the functional movement screen. So yeah, I was pretty lucky in that regard. Um, to get a really good exposure to human movement and, and restoring human movement. And I wouldn't have changed that for the world. I think the one thing I would have changed most is getting more internships, hanging out, uh, spending more time at the water cooler with sport coaches, um, especially when I, if I start thinking about down the line into my, my career path that I took, if you want to be a strength and conditioning coach with teams, with the NCAA, when you step into the private sector, there are advantages to doing that, but you have to understand that you will be labeled as not a team guy. Even though in the private sector, a lot of times you have teams coming to your facility or you are going to their facility to work with them, uh, you're not fully embedded with the team. And that makes it very difficult to get into a team environment, to get into an NCAA environment. Um, the, those uh, clubs, so to speak, can be relatively exclusive. So uh, I would have potentially tried to make it easier on myself by trying to stay more in the, the team route. Um, but I think a lot of people do go into the private sector because it's easier to get a job quickly. It pays pretty well. Um, but just my, my advice to anybody coming up, coming up would just be to be weary of that and understand the, the position that puts you in. And I made it into a team environment. Um, and, and I think anybody else can too. It's just more difficult. 
Well, last question. When, when we talk about strength and conditioning, when we talk about performance, I can go on Google and find a variety of different certifications where be, maybe, maybe by this time next week, I'm some kind of personal trainer, maybe not even setting foot in a gym these days. What are your thoughts on, on certifications and the, the efficacy of those and, and whether they're valuable? Are there ones that you recommend? Well, maybe, maybe I'm not going to ask you to, to say ones you don't recommend publicly, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a minefield to me, especially in strength and conditioning, where I see so many different organizations saying, Hey, we've got the best training, the best certification. You want to get this one. And it's the easiest for you to get. Yeah. Um, at the risk of, of uh, being crucified for this. Um, yeah, I think everybody should get their CSCS, the Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist through the NSCA. Um, it is the industry standard. I do think that certifications hold uh, hold value in at least setting a bar of core competence, um, but that doesn't mean somebody is able to do, do their job well. Uh, there's so many other factors. If you can't communicate, if you can't relate well to people, if you can't manage time, if you can't manage uh, in certain roles, budgets, um, there, there's so many factors that go into coaching that, that a certification simply cannot cover at all. Um, but I think that that base uh, bar for the industry right now is uh, the CSCS certification, at least in the States. And my opinion would be all of the other certifications out there to save those for continuing education units, uh, use those to add to your base and, and fulfill your CEUs for the CSCS certification. Well, Nick, thanks for taking the time to join us. I, I know if people have questions, usually they contact you um, after the show because they watch it later. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, just reach out to me at, at my email. That's uh, shednw at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. Send me a, a message on Twitter at Shed Strength. So for those of you listening to the podcast, that's shed, S-H-E-D-D-N-W at gmail.com. Well, Nick, thank you once again for, for sharing a little of your expertise, and I hope everybody watching enjoyed it as well. Just a reminder, of course, that we're here every week usually on Wednesdays. So be sure to join us next week for our next guest. Thank you for having me.